This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Heretical. We are back. We've been away for like a month now. It's crazy. Yeah. Some busy family circumstances, personal life. We do have those as well. <laughs> and uh, and then the gathering in Portland a couple weekends ago. Yeah, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. It's just fun to see some of you that listen and um, hear your stories. And I know that there's people that have had crazy experiences um, and all over, I mean, all across the gamut, whether it's um, an experience in a church or theology changing and getting kicked out of their family and all, all this kind of stuff. But to actually see the faces and hear the stories was um, pretty overwhelming and made me want to keep going with this show even more. So that was pretty cool. And now we're back Thanksgiving weekend with an interview that uh, we've been looking forward to for a while now with a really great Bible scholar and also a friend of ours uh, and fellow Oregon resident, Dr. Tim Mackey. Uh, So Tim now works full-time with The Bible Project, which if you haven't checked it out, uh, go to thebibleproject.com. Their mainstay is essentially producing animated videos on books of the Bible, themes in the Bible, skills and approaches to reading the Bible. But really, it's just a great all-around collection of resources. Uh, Tim was a professor. Uh, he was a pastor for a little while, and he's basically moved to full-time uh, working with this crowdfunded uh, nonprofit. Basically, he's got the dream job, just doing nerdy Bible stuff uh, full-time. So if you want some extra resources, uh, I've learned probably more from Tim than any other scholar out there and uh and i can vouch personally that he's a really great dude uh who's been willing to process messy parts of christianity and ugliness in the church and my own story and all that so uh so happy to have him on the show one little piece to note here he did do this call from a log cabin with a bunch of relatives in washington so you might hear some kids run in and out every once in a while oh and one last thing uh tim's pretty nerdy dude and uh, loves talking about this stuff. I mean, so nerdy that I think Star Wars comes up two or three times uh, in the conversation. (laughs) But as part of that, uh, we had a lot of fun talking, and so we got a pretty long conversation in. So this is going to be just the first of two parts. Uh, So next week, tune back in, and we'll have part two of our conversation with Tim Mackey. Here's part one. All right, I'm recording. Me too. Cool. I'm recording too. Yeah, great. It is. It is recording. Yeah, totally. Whoa, whoa. Uh, here, one second. <laughs> that Dude, is a you landmark. guys. They have this phone that's from my childhood over there. Wow. Hold on, one second. <laughs> okay. Hopefully. Well, that may happen. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> anyway. Okay. 
Uh, all right, I guess I'll just try to get a ball rolling and see where it goes. Tim, you're a Bible dude, Bible nerd, professional Bible nerd. Yeah. Uh, we've started a miniseries in the last couple months on how the Bible works and asking questions about, you know, the mechanics of uh, these texts and how to understand it, how to approach it, all that. Uh, you've been doing some fun research, especially the last couple of years, and some of the language you've used is that of design patterns, or uh, actually a phrase of yours that I've uh, kind of stolen is uh, the idea that when you when you really look closely into the the Bible, especially Old Testament, you see that there are signs of intelligent design. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, <laughs> not at all to be confused us- with the other conversation that uses that term. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, that term has a lot of baggage uh, for people in different communities. So, but it's a helpful analogy. <laughs> Fair. But just to help us jump in and kind of give us a snapshot of like, uh, what do you mean? What is this phrase, design patterns? Yeah. Um, and what have you been exploring? Yeah, well, um, my interest in like more academic biblical studies came after a couple of years where I've been taking classes on the Bible as literature in college. And um, but once I got exposed to the Dead Sea Scrolls and began to read around uh, all that that the floodlights that those texts shed on the the scribal origins and the processes by which the the biblical text came into existence that launched me into a whole next level of just like how these texts came into existence period (laughs) um and so i got really interested in manuscript histories and the translation early translations of the bible and the formation of the canons these collections of the hebrew bible and the new testament and then i really nerded out on that for a lot a lot of years and then I kind of came back around to my early interests in the, lit- the literary poetics and the communication strategies that these Hebrew authors employed and how their mindset for thinking and reading and communicating is totally different than how we as moderns read and think. And so happily, those two interests have kind of come together in the last few years for me in a, in a project I'm working on actually with a, a group of friends. We've kind of formed an informal research group and um, on how the, yeah, how the, how these biblical texts communicate, which is wedded to how, how they came into existence. So maybe this is all theoretical. Let me, let me just start with a concrete example. I think we, we often uh, in religious communities that grow up around the Bible, there are unspoken storylines about how these texts came into existence that tend to not ever get talked about very explicitly um but they really inform what you're looking for when you pick up the bible and and try and read it and so whether it's yeah they're golden tablets fallen from heaven and humans had little or no agency involved you know that's a common view for some um for others it would be the opposite you know, that it's merely, well, this would be more on the skeptics end, that it's just like primitive Israelite shepherd literature you know? <laughs> or oral folk tales or that kind of thing. Um, and so in in the middle, however, uh, is what, uh, I mean, and this is in the last hundred years, we just have so much great uh, information and comparative and even Israelite data from archaeology about how texts were produced in the ancient world 
how oral histories would have been passed on and the processes by which the biblical texts were formed. Um, we just have so much to work with now that even scholars didn't have 150 years ago to inform. And it's, it's, it's very different. It's not golden tablets from heaven, but it's also not primitive shepherd literature either. Uh, we're dealing with highly intelligent, educated, brilliant, ancient literary artists uh, and biblical and theologians who want to communicate the most profound truths about the kind of world that we're living in and human nature and the mystery of who God is and his purposes in the world. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> So for me, it's all my interests coming together in like theology, history, and literary poetics of literature. And uh, so there you go. I don't know if that's helpful, if that's too big, but that's kind of my 30,000 foot view of the projects I've been working on. Right. So give us kind of a, a deeper dive then into uh, this most recent project. Yeah. Uh, the, the kind of in complexity, the kind of literary yeah. uh, ingenious that you've been sort of looking for and starting to see actually is sort of all over the place? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, so maybe a, a, a couple metaphors might help. Um, so the, the biblical authors didn't sit down and write from scratch uh, most of this literature. That So let's just talk about Hebrew Bible for a while. So just the, the what Christians call the Old Testament. Um so uh, the way texts were produced in the ancient world, this is tradition literature. This is a people's uh, spiritual heritage, but also their cultural heritage. And so tradition literature uh, is literature that comes into existence through many generations. Each generation inherits uh, and also uh, adapts and shapes and honors and studies what came before it and also passes it on. And so what the biblical authors are doing most of the time is arranging and adapting pre-existing stories and poems that have come down to them from previous generations. And so one metaphor that I've come to use is the, the Old Testament isn't like, you know, you go into like a nursery, like an urban plant nursery in the city and, um, and, uh, you know, it'll be like a parking lot that they've converted into a nursery or something like that. And it's a bunch of potted plants and they're all like scooted in together. And so like the small trees are over here and the rhododendrons are here and over there and that kind of thing. And um, they're all like discrete objects, you know, in the nursery. Um, and that's sometimes how we think about the books of the Bible, that they're these independent entities. 
Um, the reality is, uh, is that the Hebrew Bible especially is much more like going out to Colorado and being in the middle of an aspen forest. <laughs> um, an aspen forest, I just learned this because I went hiking uh, outside of aspen a number of years ago. You know, aspen groves are like these mass, they're like a single organism. There's a single living root system underneath that binds all of them together. And so any tree you're looking at, it just happens to be a younger and older expression of the core root system. And that, that's exactly how the Hebrew Bible works. Um, you have some of the oldest growth, <laughs> but those oldest growths have themselves spawned and are deeply connected to newer growths that are built from the same type of cell structures uh, as the older ones. And so um, I found that as a really helpful metaphor. I didn't make that up. A Hebrew Bible scholar named Timothy Stone made that up. But I found that very helpful because if, if you've ever noticed, um, there's a lot of repeated phrases and pattern type of stories and language happening as you read throughout the Old Testament. Um, and whether it's stories, I don't know, stories about husbands and wives that deceive each other, <laughs> you know, or family members or... Um, a guy who uh, like marries too many wives and then everybody hates each other and destroys each other in the stories or there's lots of, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'll ask you guys, <laughs> have you ever noticed in reading the Bible, there's just lots of patterns of, of language like this? I'll, I'll just ask it as a real question. Has this been everything that ever, ever strikes you? I guess that's my question is we talk and um, Tim our Tim has been <laughs> talking about, um, you know, he'll say like, look at this verse here. And then it's, it's the same kind of theme as what you saw back in, you know, Genesis yeah. here or whatever. And I'm like, cool. Yeah. yeah. I like, I think I see that, but like, how do I know that those are actually connected or how do I know that that like those, those yeah. go together and it's not just yeah, like an accident right. or, um, so that'd be like one yeah. of my questions, I guess. And the other one is like, how yeah. far back, like my, I want to know like this. So it's a, written tradition for a while but i'm guessing like at some point it was all oral right and so like yeah. was it like they would tell these stories and then eventually yeah. it just got written down or yeah and like how do we know all this like yeah i don't know this yeah. <laughs> i have so many questions yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's right well um yeah so um this literally the hebrew bible comes from a people group who is representing their uh, understanding of their history, their family's history and experience in the world. And particularly, the, the claim, as you move through the story, is that this history, the literary representation of their family history, is a window into a divine will and purpose at work in the world, in, in and through their history. That's, that's the claim. You can accept that or not accept it, but that is the claim. And so what we're asking about is, um, what, uh, how did the literature come into existence that represents that history? But then also, what's the mode of communication? Like, how does, how does it actually communicate and make claims and arguments and, and communicate to a reader? And so, r really, it starts in the first three pages of Genesis are actually both teaching you some real core claims that this text is going to make about the world, but also the way it communicates is teaching you how to read the book that's sitting in front of you. Um, Genesis 1 through 3 is in many ways a, a, like a tutorial mm. in how to read the rest of the Old Testament. Um, and the main vehicle for it is 
uh, patterns of repetition. <clears throat> um, so our, most anybody can walk away from page one of the Bible and be like, oh, there was a pattern of seven days that I just encountered. Uh, and, it's, and it's through verbal repetition. Um, God always, and God said, always begins, you know, each, each of the seven days. And there was evening and morning, day one, day two, day three. Um, there's almost always a pronouncement of good. There's just lots of repetition jumping off the page. And so what Genesis 1 is also teaching you to do is how to read a text like this. Um, so then you begin to compare. This is what your mind is doing all the time. From like, you come out of the moon, this is neuroscience, which I'm not a neuroscientist. But they can tell you, like, we're coming out of the womb, and your brain is all, at a subconscious level hyper-tracking with repeated experiences and varied experiences similarities and difference and so this face the shape that's in front of me all the time um and that has moving things and says sounds to me like i began to track oh, it's it's like there all day every day <laughs> and uh the repetition is what trains you um but then another like a furry one comes in with sharp teeth that's maybe your family dog or something you're like oh that's different i don't like that one it slobbers on me and it's similarity and difference so it's, it's real basic communication and that's exactly what Genesis 1 is doing. It's through repetition. And so even the, the different days of, of the seven days of Genesis are repeating language from previous days, but also introducing new, new language. So on every day, there's a pronouncement of something good. But then if you pay attention to that, you notice on day two, there isn't anything good. Um, but on day three... It like seems aware of the absence of day two, so it gives you two goods on day three to make up for the good that wasn't there on day two. And so it's all about repetition. And these authors are trying to teach you by repeating things that came before, but with slight variations, that's how they're going to be communicating to you. And so in a microcosm, what Genesis 1 is doing um, continues throughout the whole rest of the Hebrew scriptures. It's through patterns of repetition that it, uh, the story is going to make a claim, makes it make its claims, and that um, it does raise an interesting question uh, in terms of what you were saying, Nate, uh, about how did these texts come into existence? And so, it's all through comparative anthropology that people do research on, like cultures that preserve their histories orally, and then there's lots of comparative research on. Um, from within the last century about cultures that begin to write down their oral traditions and what those processes are like. What we have in the Hebrew Bible is the end result <laughs> of about a thousand plus year long process of this. Um, but what, has, what we can see is that a book like Genesis has been crafted um, so that every single word and story there in the early parts are giving you the vocabulary that's going to develop throughout the whole rest of the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it's, the whole thing is unified like a quilt. Um, and so as pages 1, Genesis 1 through 3 teaches you to read, um, it also is preparing you with the skills and vocabulary you need to make it through the whole rest of, of, of the Hebrew Bible. So that's what I mean where our concept of how the text came into existence and what, how the texts communicate, they're actually two parts of the same question. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, so I, I track with you, Tim, but I go back to your question, right, of like, do we notice the patterns? Yes. And I can honestly say I was studying the Bible like really 
earnestly, really intently mm-hmm. for a lot of years. Me too. Before, <laughs> me too. <laughs> before I yeah. thought the patterns meant anything yeah. other than, yeah. uh, you know, I guess coincidental repetitions, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, and and I know what you're saying about Genesis one through three as a kind of, yeah, intro and this typological thing, but yeah, for a lot of a lot of years <laughs> of church history, mm-hmm. uh, people have not seen Genesis one through three as that, yeah. right? Like it, Genesis one doesn't say this is a template for how to read the rest of the Bible. It says in the beginning God created the heavens. And yeah, yeah, that's and right. And so, that's right, of course we have, you know, oh, that'd be so nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. So there are a lot of years, right, of yeah. people fighting over how to interpret these words, right? Yeah. And yeah. and I don't think for most of us, uh, this is written as a mm. as a kind of figural mm. key mm-hmm. through which you will be able to interpret and understand the rest of these texts. Like that didn't cross most of our minds mm-hmm. ever, right? Like probably well, for a lot of people, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, that, yeah, totally. At least not in the modern era. But that's because we're inheriting baggage from the last 500 and 200 years of all kinds of stuff that is setting us up poorly to encounter the Bible on its own terms. <laughs> but what, what are like what are those like real quick like when you say that? Oh, um, for example, well, so you know, through the period of the Reformation, there's a whole shift happening in terms of um, the birth of the science of history. And it's, um, and many scholars have traced this. Um, for me, I was introduced to this through a Hebrew Bible professor named John Salehammer. But he could trace, right, from the Reformation on to the present, where um, the, the meaning of the biblical text shifted from being what the words are communicating to um, the meaning of the historical events to which they point. And so... Um, now, starting with the Reformation, you can just watch it happen. Um, the meaning of the text becomes subordinate to what we can dig up in archaeology or what we can reconstruct from ancient history. And then that becomes uh, the meaning of the text, as opposed to the text being a literary representation, a verbal representation that is giving us an interpretation of a historical event. And those are two really different things. <laughs> um, uh, so here's actually here's an illustration that Sailhammer would use. He used it was um, the painting of uh, oh I forget it was a French painter Rene Magritte. I forget what move, the name of the movement he was a part of. He had this famous painting. It was hyper realist painting of a pipe. Like it looks like a pipe, an actual pipe that he painted. And then it says underneath it. Um, this in French, uh, it says, this is not a pipe. And it's, you know, it's like a philosophical mind puzzle. Um, but the point is, um, it's not a pipe. It's a painting of a pipe. And, uh, the painting of a pipe is not the same thing as a pipe. It's a visual representation of a pipe. It's not in 3D. You can't turn it over. You can't, like, put tobacco in it and, you know, um, and so it's an illustration to say this is an artist's interpretation of something that really happened, but we should never mistake the representation for the real thing. Hmm. And so all, our modern obsession with the historicity of the Bible and with, and I think there are important questions to ask about how these literary texts relate to the events which they claim to portray. 
but we should never confuse those as to the meaning of the text and what it means to do our theo hear the theological claims of these texts. Um, and to do that, I need not a shovel and a pickaxe <laughs> and a plane ticket to the ancient to the ancient Near East. Uh, what I need is um, uh, a heightened set of reading and literary skills to know how to read an ancient an ancient text. Um, so that, that's a small. Seem, it might even seem to some people like you're splitting hairs, but it's a world of difference in terms of what you what you're looking for when you pick up the Bible. Here, here's what we could do. I can maybe walk some through some examples, and um, and I think this everything we just talked about will become a little more clear. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Yeah, give us some of your favorite examples, and then I'm gonna throw one at you. Okay, great, great. Okay, so again, this is just from the first page of the Bible, um, and I remember noticing this even as reading the Bible for the first time in my early 20s and really trying to, to make sense of it. So one of the most key repeated words um, on page one of the Bible is the word good. So you have the seven-part uh, design of the cosmos in, in Genesis 1, um, and uh, seven different times there are pronouncements of what God making is good. So forget all the debates. Let's just agree that... Genesis 1 begins with uncreated darkness and waste, <laughs> and it ends with a garden, right? I think everybody from all positions about Genesis 1 can agree on that. And the, the process from the garden is from darkness and chaos and um, no life to a process of increasing goodness, and it was good. God separates the waters from the waters. It was good. There was light. There was good. Sun, moon, and stars, good. Creatures, good. And then the culminating good is, on the seventh day, is not just good, it's an increased good. God saw all that he had made. It was very good. So you walk away from page one going, ah, okay, good. It's very important. Uh, good is something God provides. Good is something that God uh, creates but also gives to others. He gives it to the creatures and gives it to the humans. Um, God is the one with the knowledge of good and the power to create good. Genesis 2, um, God is the first one to notice something is not good, and it's of a human alone. So a human alone can't fulfill the purpose for which uh, he, he appointed the humans, which is to, to rule uh, the world as his partners. And so God... Um, it's a fascinating story, uh, brings one human, has one human out of two. <laughs> so they have one humanity made up of two humans, and that's good. Um, then the next thing uh, where the word good appears is God gives to the humans this choice about whether they're going to live in his good world and as his co-rulers, or there's this chance they have to know and to seize knowing good and the opposite of good, and take it for themselves. That's the next time the word good appears. And so all of a sudden, you have all this string in the story. You have the string of the word good that puts together a really profound storyline for you. God's the provider of good. Humans wake up in a world of good. When something isn't good, God wants to bring about good. But then also, every human has a choice themselves about whether they're going to 
trust God's provision and knowledge of good, or am I going to take and know and define good and not good on my own terms? That's a really profound set of claims to make about human nature and the human condition. And it's all happening through the hyperlinking of these stories about good. Okay, so, um, so we'll just do one more step. So, of course, that story goes poorly. There's a snake. <laughs> There's a snake that uh, really knows how to take advantage of a, of a situation full of opportunity. And uh, the snake gets the humans to doubt God's goodness and generosity. Um, the snake, oh, this is a good example of repetition. The snake quotes a line that God said in the previous chapter, but he changes one word. <laughs> so in the previous chapter, God said, eat from any tree of the garden, just not this one. And then this creature speaks to the humans and says, did God say don't eat from any trees of the garden? This is, it's just one little word, right? He changes, the, the, um, changes it from a gift into a question that gets them to sus- become suspicious about God's. God's purposes. And then, of course, that seems to plant a seed for the humans because then they're like, oh, yeah, there's that one and I want it. Um, So it's all about humans before a decision about good and what they're going to do in response to what an animal is saying to them. And we we know how that famous story goes. Okay, right, the companion story right next to it is about the man and the woman. It's about their kids, the next generation. And it's the famous story of Cain and Abel. Um, and in this story, God also does something puzzling. Like, in, you know, in the Garden of Eden, like, what, what's up with the tree? And like, why not? I kind of understand about good, but what's up with that tree? It, but it's a puzzling, right? Like, God doesn't say, don't eat from the tree, and here's why. It's left a mystery for the reader and for the characters. They just have to trust. In the same way, the next generation, God does something that isn't explained. He accepts one son's offering, but not another son's offering. That's a, a famous puzzle in the story of Cain and Abel, you know, why. But then the whole story is about um, how the humans are going to respond to something God has said or done that doesn't make sense to them. And so you're like, oh, that's interesting. It's a very similar kind of story. Totally different set of circumstances, but those stories are actually similar in terms of that theme, aren't they? And then what's interesting is that Cain gets really angry about how God uh, favors his brother. And then what God says to him, it's the next repetition of the word good in the story. God says uh, to him, why are you angry? Um, if he sa- he, God says, if you do good, you will be lifted up. If you do good, there will be exaltation. <clears throat> and then he says, but listen, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you can rule it. Almost every line in there is a little uh, vocabulary copy and paste from, pre- from the previous two chapters. Um, so uh, sin, crouching like an animal. Have I encountered any other crafty animals that are there with the humans at the moment they need to make the key moral choice? Oh yeah, that was the snake in the previous story. Now it's the abstract concept of sin, but sin's crouching like an animal trying to get you. Um, its desire is for you. So uh, the desire, actually this is a whole, we don't have time to go down this rabbit hole, but that's a copy and paste from something in Genesis chapter 3 um, about some kind of what seems to be an inverted or antagonistic desire. But sin wants you. Um, the same 
way that there's going to be this relational conflict between the man and the woman in chapter 3. Uh, but you can rule over it. That's what God said the humans were to do over creation on, on page 1. And then, of course, Cain doesn't do good. He murders his brother. So that's a good example. So I know I'm talking for a long time, so I'll stop for a second. But So Genesis 3 and 4 are two stories put next to each other. And it's actually through thematic pairing and then key vocabulary, copy and pasting between the two stories um, that get you to compare the two stories. All of a sudden, you have to go for a long walk and just think about, oh, how is the garden temptation similar to Cain and Abel's story? How is it different? And then what you see is this portrait developing in the story of the human condition and of um, humans as these deceived but also rather selfish creatures <laughs> uh, who even unwittingly or sometimes purposefully spread death and, and relational chaos in the world that creates violence and bloodshed. And all we're doing is tracking with key words here. And so what the Hebrew Bible authors do is what happened between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 with repeated words just keeps happening. It just it keeps cycling on itself. And so you'll be in a story about um, Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 16. And it's a story about how two people, a man and a woman, Abraham and Sarah, God said they're going to have a kid, but we can't have any kids. But they see this Egyptian slave that they have and they take her and do what is good in their eyes to her. And it's all this language in that story from the Genesis 3 temptation story. And so, um, and there's thematic parallels. It's a husband and a wife, and they don't trust God. And they, they do what's good in their own eyes, and it results in oppression, and all sorts of terrible things happen. And so this is just how it works, man. Every single story, as you go through the Bible is a set of networked patterns on earlier stories, almost always going back to um, Genesis 1 through 11. It's as if Genesis 1 through 11 is like a playbook that's giving you a template of what, hu what humans are and what humans do. And then the rest of the Hebrew Bible is just uh, playing out the playbook in hundreds of different little variations. So uh, there it is in a nutshell. I, I know I just, I just talked for like a long time, but um, tell me <laughs> how you're hearing that. And uh, uh, maybe I'd love to hear your questions or thoughts. Yeah, I guess I come back to the question of like, do we know that because, because they're similar? Like because those, those themes that you saw in Genesis 1 through 11 and then you know, seeing that again in Genesis 16, mm. because it's similar, mm. you know that that's what they're doing? Or yeah. like, correct. Yeah, I mean, how, do, how are we sure that that's happening? Oh, um, man. I just because they, are, I just just they you, are similar? or Yeah, yeah. I just, told you, I just told you a few. If I were to show you the chart of all of the similar vocabulary uh, between Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, it's mind-blowing. It's just like, hmm. you just look at it and you're like, oh, that's clearly, that's clearly intentional. Actually, here's a good analogy. Um, uh, are, are you a Star Wars fan-ish? <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> Got it. I've did, seen did, them a few times. Okay, there you go. So, like, um, uh, if you've seen the old trilogy and then you're watching the new trilogy unfold, you probably noticed, along with lots of people, that there's very intentional repetitions happening. Mm. Um, to speak of the obvious, the Death Star, <laughs> right? The big Death Star is, like, the big terrible threat to be avoided in both the first trilogy and the first movie of the new trilogy. And those par the, the destruction of the Death Star scenes, they're very similar 
right? And it all focuses on one going into a trench and having to shoot the torpedo into a very small little, that kind of thing. So when we encounter this in other forms of communication, we don't even think about it. It's just, we're like, oh yeah, that's how, that's how it works. And the whole point is you compare the two Death Star battle scenes, their similarities and their differences. And the meditation on the similarities and differences begins to form, help you understand the, these new characters, like how Poe Dameron is different from Luke Skywalker, but also how he's similar. And then that becomes a vehicle of the, of the movie's message and thematic claims. And so it's no different. It's a very basic form of human communication is repetition and then variation. And uh, the Hebrew Bible is just using this tool. It's like the primary medium of it. And so, yeah, if, if I could show you the chart between Genesis 3 and 4, if I could show you the chart in that story of Abraham and Sarah um, with uh, Genesis 3, you, it just, you can see it in the verbal texture of the stories. Um, and often these hyper, another metaphor I use is hyperlinking, like on a web page. You know? um, often it seems as if the biblical authors will intentionally phrase something in an odd way in a later story, intentionally to make you go, oh, that's a good one. Oh, like here's a good example. Um, so later in the story, there's a story about Abram. He goes to the Philistine town named Gerar. This is in Genesis uh, 20. And um, he thinks they're going to kill him because his, his wife is beautiful of sight, which is exactly... What the, what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is called. <laughs> and he's afraid that they're going to take her and then kill him, um, which is all, you know, and think in the tree, in Genesis 3, it's all about the tree is beautiful of sight and, you know, they take from the tree and so on. Um, but then uh, Abram actually, Abraham actually plays the role of the snake in that story because he's the deceiver. He's the one lying in order to preserve his own life. And then God actually comes to the king in a dream and so on. There's all kinds of other things going on. But at the end of the story, the king gets really angry that Abraham lied to him. And God's the one who tells on Abraham. And then the king says, like, hey, you know, get out of here. Um, I'll command that no one touches you. He says, I'll, I give a command that no one touches you. Um, do you remember what the woman said in Genesis 3? God commanded us saying, don't touch the tree. And then uh, he says, the king gives a command saying, don't touch Abraham and his wife. And then the king gives Abraham and Sarah this money to like pay off for psychological damages. <laughs> and then what he says about the money is he says, this, is, this will be as a covering for the eyes. It's just a very odd phrase in Hebrew and in English. The money covers your eyes. It's so weird. Um, but if you think about it, it's exactly an inversion of the Genesis 3 story, which is they took from the thing that was beautiful and it was opening their eyes. And so um, what, the thing that was taken that opened their eyes in Genesis 3 is, is being bounced off of in Genesis where um, uh, it was all about a, the, a deceiver, Abraham, and a woman who's beautiful of sight and who's taken and who's giving back. And to undo the deception, we need to cover the eyes instead of have them opened. So that's a good example where these authors are very clever. They're very creative in how they're hyperlinking and recalling stories. But if I could show you Genesis 20 in the list of vocabulary that matches Genesis 3, it's just right there again, just like the two Death Star stories in the, in the two Star Wars narratives. Um, and so, yes, 
Um, you're right. I've been living in this paradigm for a couple of years, but it, it happens enough that you get, it's like you get trained to read the stories this way. And each story that comes along later, you're looking for clues. Now, once you see one keyword, you're like, oh, that's a keyword in Genesis 3, the eyes, um, or people being blind or seeing or not seeing. And then it trains you to look for other, other keywords as you go through. So I know you know this, Tim. Uh, I've seen your charts. Yeah. <laughs> so I know what you're talking yeah, about. I know. Because uh, I've like taken a bogey some to, seminars with you. To talk about the charts. Right. Yeah. But the, the fact is we don't see the charts, right? And, and I know yeah, you know this. That's right. But that's it, right. it's because, you know, you've, you've invested decades of your life into learning Hebrew and becoming fluent. Sure. And fluent in these texts and this kind of literature. Right? Yeah, yeah. Most of us aren't doing that. So we're at a handicap. Yeah. And we don't, I mean, we don't need to dwell on that for too long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, other than, I think it's worthwhile like, acknowledging that that's real. Correct, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, that uh, is real. Is a real thing. That, 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 yeah, and uh, one thought on that. I, I actually remember noticing repeated vocabulary. Actually, I was taught in my first class, which happened to coincide with the first year or two of me reading the Bible, period. I was taught to look for repetition. And I was taught that hyper-literal translations are really hard to read like before going to bed at night around the bus. <laughs> but they're great for doing study because the biblical authors are all about strategic vocabulary use. And so um, you can track a lot of this in English. Not all of it, but you can actually track qu quite a lot of it, um, which I did in my early years of, re of reading the Bible. Um, and then second, I, I get... So for me, this is a paradigm sh shift that I think I'm still undergoing is that you know, this literature, I'm not sure the authors envisioned a universal worldwide audience for this literature. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like, like they're, for them, this is, this is the Jewish interpretation of their history, and it's for themselves. It's for themselves to read and reflect and for the next generation. And so the fact that God, on a traditional view of inspiration, if, if you want to entertain that view, it would force you to reckon with the fact that God chose as the vehicle to his communication to, with people um, the literature and literary conventions of one particular people group. Um, and that's, I think that's just built into the Jewish and Christian claim that God reveals himself at all in his, you know, uh, to people. Hmm. But... I, so it makes it inconvenient for people who don't know Hebrew, which is most of humans for most of human history. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. You just got to wrap your, you wrap your mind around that fact, I guess. I feel like I'm wrapping my mind around it most days that I wake up. But anyhow. Uh, so, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that? Well, let me ask you an intentionally obnoxious question. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for all those of us, thousands of years later, uh, without Hebrew and without being a part of this uh, tradition literature community, yeah, um, who are coming to this thing as a book that's been given sacred uh, significance. W what does it mean to read the Cain and Abel story literally? Mm. Uh, or have you mm. moved away from that notion? And, or what's a better way of even thinking about? Mm how to approach a story like the Cain and Abel story, Genesis 16 or Genesis 20, mm -hmm. uh, any of those examples? Um, well, yeah, the word literal is so fraught with <laughs> uh, 
complexities and baggage and emotions <laughs> um, in our in our moment. So I think anytime the the word literal versus whatever metaphorical comes up, you just have to say, um, try your best to define what you mean by that. I can't answer your question without knowing what you mean by the word, by the word literal. And I find as I press students uh, when I'm in classroom settings to do that is people have wildly different definitions of what they think even a literal reading of the Bible represents. So um, what I mean when I use the word literal is I'm looking for the literary meaning. In other words, um, whenever somebody sits down to craft a piece of written communication, they use literary conventions, um, to and words and paragraphs or repetition, whatever, whatever culture, whatever that culture uses. But they usually like when I write down something, I mean something by it, mm. <laughs> and I mean the person who reads it to read it and understand at least hopefully basically what I'm saying. And there it is. So that's what I mean by the literal meaning is the meaning that the author wants me to grasp as I read as I read this text. And again, this is back to this is not a pipe, that painting. Uh, in the modern era, meaning has become synonymous with understanding its historical referent. If I understand the event to which it refers, then that's its meaning. But of course, an event doesn't have meaning. <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know the meaning of what, I, what brushing my teeth meant this morning. You know? <laughs> um, I don't know the meaning of why I'm at my in-laws for Thanksgiving, you know. Uh, but maybe in five years I'll begin to see this weekend played a key role in something that happened and this thing and the things that followed from it. And then I could craft a story about the meaning of the weekend. But if I crafted that narrative, that wouldn't be the same thing as the, what actually happened here. I don't know the meaning of any of this. And so uh, I think the literal meaning that is going to be most helpful to modern readers is try learning how to understand what an author meant by giving a literary representation of their, his, of their history. Is it true that potentially people at that time weren't as concerned with the historical accuracy of mm. what they were writing as well? Mm. Um, mm. Potentially we're just more consumed with mm. knowing the actual facts mm. and order of events. Mm. Is that, what does yeah. that trigger in you? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, if you think about it, this kind of tradition literature and foundation stories of like a people or a culture, um, these are stories that matter deeply to these people because they're identity forming stories. This is our story. We're the Exodus people. Hmm. <laughs> uh, the, the Exodus story made a deep impact on the identity and practices of the Israelite people over the course of millennia and still today. You know, for those who choose to live by those, by those rituals, and so I, I think it's that the 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 way that these literary texts refer to history is often by a different set of conventions than how we think of a literary text representing a history. Mm. I think for sure, like it's a different culture, a totally different culture. Um, but I so so for me actually, what I, my hang up is with the word accuracy. Mm. Because that itself just speaks of a cultural value that we have. Actually, here, this is very interesting to think about. So, it, is the meaning of event in event captive 
to how accurately you portray it. I often um, use the example of the, uh, my wife and I met and dated and got married over the course of about two years. And when we're often meeting people, I'd be like, oh, how'd you guys meet and get married? Um, we've been married 18 years. And so we have this, a really like, we've told it so many times. You know, <laughs> we, have this, we have a long version, a medium version, a short version. And we kind of know the cues of who, what parts and who says what at what part. And, uh, um, and we, what we've actually done is condensed many events down into a, a shorter number of events. Um, I know we've, I, we've talked about it before. We've merged multiple days at the beach into one day at the beach and so on in our retelling. And so it's sort of like, is it inaccurate? Well, it's not video camera footage. Um, but in another sense, it's very accurate. I lived it. <laughs> and what it is, is it's a faithful representation of that season of my life. And the way that we tell it is trying to help people understand the meaning that we can now see in these events um, and how they work together. And so accuracy um, is part of the equation, but it's not the only value driving how we form that narrative. And so I think something analogous is going on with the biblical authors. And so, yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. Like chronology is not the, the utmost value. They're constantly rearranging events and putting them, and they don't even hide it. I mean, the book of Ezekiel has a real clear chronological scheme, and there's just some sections that are just so clearly have been relocated to a different section of a book. And it's, it's not trying to hide it, because their value isn't to give you video camera footage. Um, and, and so, yeah, there, there you go. It's, it's hard for moderns to wrap our minds around. Uh, a different culture's way of representing their history. <laughs> but I think we have to learn how to read these texts sympathetically on their own terms, or else I think we're just destined to, to kind of mis misread them. Okay, so on authorial intent and meaning, uh, let me see if I can kick the ball forward with an example of my own. Great. Uh, so this year, Tim, I got to take a, a seminar on Genesis with you, uh, which was half on Genesis, half you sort of playing out uh, these kinds of designs and patterns, right? And, yeah. And uh, yeah. and exploring how everything is interwoven and the different connections. And uh, we we had a little back and forth on the very strange story in Genesis nine mm -hmm. of oh, there's yeah. the flood, yes. the ark, yeah. Things <laughs> come to a kind of conclusion. They get off yeah. the boat, and yeah. there's this strange event with uh, Noah and his family members. Mm -hmm. And we had done a podcast episode early on when we started the show sort of drawing from Mike Kaiser stuff and yeah, some yeah. of the articles out there on uh you know connecting basically so it's the sin of ham mm -hmm. and you know I had done some research and seen for the first time oh whoa there's mm -hmm. like this whole basically section of Leviticus <laughs> this seems like it's sort of implanting a decoder ring mm -hmm. uh that is basically translating the phrase, uh, your mother's nakedness, <laughs> right, is your father's nakedness. So there's mm -hmm. basically this thing where you, you read the story in most of my uh, mm -hmm. upbringing. Mm -hmm. uh, we interpreted Genesis 9 as this uh, mm -hmm. story of Noah getting drunk mm -hmm. and doing some sort of 
typically uh, assumed to be some sort of homosexual incestual mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. And so it was Noah's fault and Noah did something wrong. And then sort of get in this other realm of research that goes, actually, it seems like this phrase uh, is a reference to Noah's wife mm-hmm. and that in the, th- in the theme of essentially being seizing power mm-hmm. all the way back from Genesis 3 to the sons of God in Genesis 6, then there's this uh, kind of consistent theme that uh, Ham potentially mm-hmm. uh, essentially raped his own mother to sort of take over the family line and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I basically, we had had this back and forth. I'm like, okay, so, yeah. you know, which is it? Is this, yeah. <laughs> uh, is this Noah's son does something to Noah and yeah. Noah's wife? Yeah. Or is this Noah does something? Yeah. And you actually reach the conclusion that it's both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually believe that more firmly now than when we had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. So I'm happy uh, to talk more about it. Yeah. Right. So, and, and that brought up uh, this, to me, fascinating idea mm-hmm. that there would actually be double entendre mm-hmm. written into narrative mm-hmm. uh, in, in biblical texts mm-hmm. where a story is saying this happened mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's actually trying to get us to take that story, mm-hmm. sit down this morning and think, Oh, that story said this happened, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> Noah's son Ham did something really awful. Yeah, yeah. And then connect that with other stories in Genesis, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then later this evening, have a beer, come back to the same story, <laughs> yeah, and read it and say, oh, this entirely different thing happened. Yeah. And that then fits in with this other set of themes and patterns uh, yeah. going through there. Kind of walk us through this yeah. and what the heck that does with. Yeah. What we do with the meaning of a text yeah. and the ways we've sort of been trained to go to a text, find find that meaning, right? Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> Figure right. out what the the singular meaning is, yeah. uh, and then and then move forward. Yeah. Wait, but I'm really curious. Can you also talk about how both of those things could be true in that specific story? Yep. Totally. Yeah. Happy to. Yeah. Happy to. And I, this is a this is a frontier for me. I'm still working it out. So in another two years, I might have another way of putting. It. I will certainly have another way of putting this. So. We have, a, we have a category, almost all cultures have um, ways of talking ironically, sarcastically, I, um, where we mean multiple things by using one set of words. Um, and so irony and sarcasm is a great one because it's actually the tone of voice and the greater context that, um, that makes something clear. Um, so, you know, whatever, like... Uh, I'm I'm being a jerk to my wife, and she's like, "Hey, could you you know go get the last bag of groceries from the car?" And I'd be like, "I'd love to," <laughs> All right? So so obviously there's double meaning. Um, I'm saying I would love to, but what my words actually communicate are the opposite of that. I will, but I'm not happy because what I just sprained my ankle or something. I don't know. So this isn't like magic language. This is normal mode of communication, but it is a clever mode of communication. Um, So there are other ways we can do double meaning uh, on purpose with words that are capable of multiple meanings. Um, And so whether, so great ones are, are, um, we have them like, like uh, in English, like read or read. I read the book, I read the book, that's R-E-A-D, and then R-E-D. For, for the color red. 
And so you could, I can't think of it right now, you could create a paragraph that's all about read, read, and read, working in all these cool little ways. And it could, it could turn out that the book is actually read, that you were reading, that you used to have read, and the, you know what I'm, you could do this. So all languages have, uh, they're called homonyms that work like this. So, um, so you take that principle, and then you start employing it with narrative patterns, and I think it's the same exact exact principle. And so this, the sin of Ham and what it means for him to look upon the nakedness of his father is such a great, is such a great example. Um, so so what, what that, that whole scene, Noah getting off the boat and planting a vineyard, that's a new, ad, new Adam and Eve scene. Where he, and God commissions him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And it's exactly what, what happened. Um, in Genesis 1. So that itself is a good example of narrative patterning. Noah is like a new Adam. And he gets off, he plants a vineyard, and in the vineyard some great sin is committed because of the fruit of the vineyard. And you're like, oh no, it's Genesis 3 all over again except even more weird now. Um, so uh, he gets drunk and he exposes himself in the tent and then Ham looks upon the nakedness of his father. So if you're just reading, you actually... Um, that could mean many things. It's also uh, what Noah wakes up and he says he knew what his son had done to him. So the narrative is worded in this highly suggestive way, but it just leaves you, it leaves you without the core information you need to actually make sense of what happened. And I am now convinced that it's exactly on purpose. Um, and and I, there are many narratives like this in the Hebrew Bible. You have to fit this into how the Bible works. <laughs> there are narratives that are actually crafted super dense with intentional gaps and ambiguities. And they're like, they're riddles. What they are is they're narrative riddles. Um, and Proverbs chapter 1 actually tells you that one of the things that you'll learn from reading the book of Proverbs is how to interpret riddles. <laughs> Proverbs 1 tells you that being a skilled reader of the Hebrew Bible involves knowing how to understand riddles. And so, um, the, 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 so, so you have something, got, something happened sexually with Ham in relation to his father. Um, so on, if, you go, if you have in your mind the um, whatever same-sex intercourse in the form of rape and drunkenness, okay, so you get that, and you go on through the story... Um, you're going to hit multiple stories that are going to be designed off of that story and hint back to it and kind of help illuminate what happened earlier. For example, um, you have uh, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's the famous story, the moment where the men of the city want to break into Lot's house and and gang rape the angels. Um, So it's human and angel which itself is a commentary linking back to the sons of God and the daughters of men from Genesis 6. Um, but then after that story, after they escape Sodom and Gomorrah, you have that really, it's, such, it's one of the most cringing stories in the Hebrew Bible where Lot has sex with his daughters in the cave. Yeah. So think about this. Here you have um, two daughters who are worried that um, their seed will not live. That's what they say. Our seed will not live. And so they get their dad drunk in a cave two nights in a row. <laughs> and the children sleep with their father 
um, because of wine in a cave to keep the seed alive. Um, almost all of that whole story with Lot and his daughters, all the vocabulary in there is keyed off of stuff from the flood story and the Noah story. So that's an example where um, it, it confirms the interpretation, or at least one way of thinking about Noah and his son, um, that it was Ham raping his father. Both really terrible things. Um, but then you go forward in the story um, even more, and you get to the book of Leviticus. And there, um, you read in Leviticus 18, a beginning paragraph to be like, hey, um, don't live like the Canaanites. You know the Canaanites that live in the land? They live in all these ways. They have customs and habits, and don't do any of those things. Because uh, don't forget, in Genesis 9, Ham, the, the narrator interrupts you two times in the story to tell you, oh yes, Ham, he's the father of the Canaanites. And then he just keeps the story going. You're like, whoa, whoa, what was that for? Why do I need to know that Ham's the father of the Canaanites? I get to Leviticus, and it says, hey, don't be like the Canaanites, because here's how they live. And then there's this whole list of rules about sex in Israelite culture, and specifically who you're not supposed to have sex with. And one of them is, don't uh, make visible the nakedness of your father. That's your mom. <laughs> don't do that. And so there, the nakedness of your father um, is very clearly, it's about a son um, sleeping with his mom, to, yeah, which is totally connected, or at least the wife of his father, which is all about inheritance status grabbing. And you're like, oh, so Ham, maybe Ham was sleeping with Noah's wife in order to become the leader of the family. You would get to the book of Samuel and you would find that reading confirmed too. When Absalom sleeps with the wives of David, his father, as his proclamation to make himself king. Which, and all those stories are designed back on that story. So I think the Ham and Noah story is intentionally opening up both possibilities. Both are equally screwed up, and both are themselves just iterations of the, of the garden temptation back in Genesis 3. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? The, the Noah story with Ham in the vineyard is itself a mirror uh, design pattern story from the garden, and then it's, it's capable of two meanings, and both of those meanings are played upon in the design patterns of the story as you go throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And I, I think what it is, it's, it, this, is, dude, this is just creative literature. <laughs> you know? Like they can make a story do more theologically than if it just had one meaning. And so it seems to have been intentionally crafted to be open-ended so that it could get activated in multiple ways later on in the story. I'm, I'm so sorry I'm not concise. Uh, this is great. <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could be more concise. But I don't, this isn't like magical double meaning. People, we do this all the time. We mean multiple things by what we say, and that's a part of clever, riddle-like communication. And the book of Proverbs tells you explicitly that's exactly the kind of communication that the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible is. Okay, that was part one of our conversation with Tim Mackey. Come back next time to hear part two. And also, if you want to find out more about the show or ask any questions you have or share your story, you can do that at almostheretical.com. We'll see you next time. Peace.